Well, to my listening audience, thanks for listening and supporting Inside Personal Growth. Uh, thank you, Brian Wetzler, for being on the show and joining us from hot Austin, Texas today. We're going to be talking to him about his book, Into the Soul of the World, My Journey to Healing. And for all of my listeners who are on a journey or finding a spiritual path, trying to heal, uh, this is a definite book you want to read. Good day to you. Uh, how are you doing, Brad? I'm doing great, Greg. It's great to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you on. And I always like to let my listeners know, uh, because yesterday, um, our referral source from Austin, who actually is moving today, <laughs> did you know that he's leaving, mm. um, Bruce Cryer, right. the HeartMath Institute, uh, put us together um, about a month ago, and Brad's appearing on the show as a result of that. And shout out and kudos to Bruce, um, who's now headed off to Sarasota, Florida. So um, let me let our listeners know, Brad, a bit about you. Uh, Brad Wetzler is an author, journalist, editor, book writing instructor, instructor memoir coach, and mentor and yoga instructor. Uh, his articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, GQ, National Geographic, Newsweek, Wired, Men's Journal, Travel, Leisure, George, Best American Travel, Writing, and Outside, where he was a senior editor and contributing editor. Um, his prior book, uh, Eat Mosquitoes, Don't Eat Meat, was a collection of columns he wrote for Outside. Brad writes, teaches, coaches, and mentors from his home in Austin, Texas. And this memoir, Soul Into the Soul of the World, is out and ready to be purchased. You can get it off of Amazon. And I want to direct my listeners also to a beautifully done website. More about Brad, the book, the testimonials, going to his writing classes, joining his community. Um, writing, or I should say reading his blogs, I just go to brad, w-e-t-z-l-e-r.com. That's brad, w-e-t-z-l-e-r.com. That's where you can learn more about Brad and his heartfelt approach uh, to coaching people and uh, getting them to be able to get a book done. Huh? Well, thank you. And, yeah, well, uh, thanks for that introduction. Well, and send a send off to, to Bruce too. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck to well, Bruce. This book is something that, you know, once you start getting into it, you can hardly put it down. And um it's got so much compelling, I want to say, story weaved into it, along with, you know, what was really happening to you. You've had this compelling story. You also have these insights from these journeys from around the world that where you traveled, you went to Jerusalem and you went to all these various places. Can you speak with the listeners why you wrote the book and what are a few of the transformative experiences you had that had a positive influence on your mental health and contributed to your healing as it is today? I mm -hmm. think healing, no matter what it is, uh, a, a bad experience with a father. Uh, I, I was just writing a memo before we got on here about a client who's 
the general manager of the company is not stepping up and being assertive and being making people be accountable. And usually that's because when people got hurt in their life at an earlier mm-hmm. point, they avoided conflict, mm-hmm. you know? And I know you know this really well. <laughs> right? Yes. If there's somebody that knows it really well and you dealt with it with your father. So why'd you write the book? And what do you want the readers to get out of this? Yeah, I wrote the book. Um, well, of course, I've, I've been a writer for 30 years. I was an editor first, and then then I became a travel and adventure writer. And then I began to, uh, I stumbled into a teaching job in Denver of teaching memoir um, long before, this is 10 years ago, before I'd written a memoir. And um, and I, I learned so much to get ready to teach. I'd, I'd written in first person before a lot, so it wasn't totally foreign to me. But I knew at that time, and I, I was still struggling a lot on, I was fairly early on my recovery journey at that time. And and I just knew I was going to tell this story someday. And and I had tried a few times in the last 10 years and just wasn't ready, kept finding myself circling and repeating stories, you know, trauma writing, really how I saw it. So so I knew I knew I would heal uh, in writing it, and I knew that um, my story had things to teach people about about um, healing from not just PTSD and depression, which I've he- uh, struggled with, but um, but you know finding more ease and peace in their lives. Um, you know, and 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 I think that the answer for me turned out to be deeply spiritually connected. So that that's the part about writing the book. You asked me about the things I discovered out in the world, and um, um, you know, I, when I was traveling, I'd often be covering some story, but I would find myself, um, you know, gravitating towards sacred sites. I'd get the story done and I'd find myself hopping a plane or a train or taking a car to some temple or church. And, and I, you know, those places made me feel whole and, and, and spiritual. And at the time, and at the time I thought, it was coming from those places. And, and, you know, there's some truth to, I think India itself is a deeply, the, the spirit is in the soil there. You know, you start this book off and most people, listeners are going to know John Krakauer. Um, and you got this phone call that you received from him while he was still in Kathmandu um, after this catastrophic climb in Everest, right? Um, and you worked for Outside Magazine at the time as the editor. But you go on to mention that uh, our story is really about faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and your truest beginnings were this, I say, this journey well began 12 years prior, but you were 12 years old in May of 1978. Um, and you were on the sandy backs of the Arkansas White River, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, could you tell the listeners a little about this story, your personal journey, and your relationship with your father, which seemed to be somewhat tumultuous, challenging mm-hmm. at best? Yeah. <laughs> um, I w- we were on a father-son um, uh, canoe trip uh, as part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. At that time, I was um, in, a, in a Bible study group in seventh grade. Um, and that was, sorry, I grew up in the Midwest and that was sort of a common thing. And so we went on this canoe trip and it had rained heavily all spring long and it rained really hard the previous week. And we were told that the river was dangerous, um, uh, right now to float, but, but the fathers decided we were going to float anyway. And well, after lunch, um, 
we had to portage the canoes and we when we put the canoe back in my father and i um you know the 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 canoe was going sideways and uh and it 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 dumped over and and, and tossed us out of the canoe uh, a little backstory there all morning long you know my father had been kind of barking at me to to paddle harder and 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 I was, and I, I, I later realized that that you know he didn't really know how to to steer a canoe, and and so we were in this together at the time, and it, you know, and so I was tossed from the canoe, and I floated downstream, and I felt this strong jerk, and then I was tugged underwater, and after a few seconds, I was pulled under again, and then I surfaced, and and I eventually felt this log next to my body and i i could tell that my life jacket had snagged on a submerged log and so i was there um and i could see downstream and i watched my father float downstream and uh and crawl out onto the sandy bank and and i, I was there stuck and i was just i was sort of outside of time and at this time i you know i knew nothing about trauma um but i was there for several minutes occasionally getting pulled under and then coming back up I just kept seeing my father who who seemed paralyzed on the beach and and then um and you know so this this I was there for I don't know how many minutes several minutes eventually a um another canoe slammed into me and it set me free and another another father scooped me up and and um you know so so that that was a trauma but then when I got home um I went to tell my mother about this this experience in which I truly believed I was going to die. And um, um, and, you know, my father basically stepped in front of me and said that it didn't happen, that I was exaggerating and that my shirt got snagged on a twig. And I knew this wasn't true, but I felt too intimidated, too scared to, to try to set the record straight. Well, I ended up spending, you know, the next weeks with a cut up side and bruised side, um, trying to process what had happened to me. And and that became a metaphor, I think, for what was also just a toxic, um, dysfunctional childhood in a family that was struggling with alcoholism and 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 probably narcissism, too. And there was just a way that I was living in a reality trying to point out, hey, can we heal what's going on here? You know, can we see what's going on here at least? Um, you know, this is um, this is not right. And eventually, my my you know so-called truth-telling irritated everybody in the family until they essentially pushed me out. And there's something called family scapegoating that that you know your readers or listeners can research, where where uh, you know a certain family member, usually the most sensitive one, will end up kind of holding the shame for. The entire family that can't can't process and, and and feel their own shame and it gets put down onto a single person well when i left childhood i was deeply depressed um and that, at that point suffering from you know already from ptsd but i didn't know it and um and that eventually led me to my first encounter with a um in the mental health field with a psych psychiatrist and and which later led to a misdiagnosis that kind of sets up the rest of the book. I say I deal with a doctor, Dr. Brian Allman and uh, Dr. Fuetti, who actually did this, came up with the ACE studies, adverse mm. childhood experiences. And I'm sure you're very well aware of this. Yes. 147,000 people and how this affects your health, uh, mm -hmm. cortisol levels, uh, being overweight, 
yeah. abuse problems in the family, all the kind of indicators that would say, hey, if you scored real high on an ACE study, where you would be. And you obviously were were being affected by all this tremendously emotionally and mentally. And you ultimately, as you said, the story goes on, you went to, as you call him, Dr. Jerry, I'm sure his name wasn't Dr. Jerry, but right. that's what you call him in the book. Um, and it, it kind of took you to rock bottom. Also, you speak about even going deeper with the treatments with mm. Dr. Winston in 2001, uh, where you gained weight, you felt numb, you're kind of totally out of your mind. Now, I... I don't personally relate, but I relate to a family member that was bipolar and manic. Mm -hmm. And this was my next oldest brother, who's now deceased. Mm -hmm. And and probably deceased as a part due to those, he was on lithium, he was on all kinds of drugs trying, and then he wouldn't be on the drugs. And he was, you know, depressed one day and manic the next day and so on. And, and mental health, I was reflecting on my wife. It's okay to be physically challenged, but when you've got mental health issues, it's quite a stigma in society. Mm -hmm. Speak with us, if you would, about this journey you took with these doctors who gave you all these medications that basically mm -hmm. made you feel numb to the world. Yeah. Well, I think I was particularly vulnerable to, you know, to getting kind of caught in the medicalized um, mental health industry. You know, I was as we talked about, there was this sort of father hunger, this, this desire to connect with, with, um, you know, especially older men and to have their, their empathy. And, and so I, I think I, I came into that realm quite vulnerable to what was going to happen. I, um, my first doctor was Dr. Jerry. And, and after one hour session, he, I uh, told some stories about my depression, which was my main symptoms. I also had some kind of mystical experiences. I was sort of a, you know, an unusually kind of kid in that way. And, and he took those to, to signify mania. And so I walked out of there at the end of an hour with, with a, a diagnosis of bipolar and, and a prescription for lithium, which I took earnestly for many years. Um, and I eventually switched doctors. He retired. The next doctor picked up where he left off, didn't ask too many questions about, about my childhood. Um, and because the because I had PTSD and not bipolar, these meds weren't doing a thing to to really heal anything or even treat the symptoms. I was I was still struggling as much as ever. Well, at the model at the time was to keep adding up more. You know, this idea of a medical uh, a medication cocktail. Eventually, I took twelve or thirteen different medications, twenty three pills a day. Um, everything ranging from antidepressants to mood stabilizers to antipsychotics to stimulants. The stimulants were added because I was not getting out of bed, and then that allowed me to be a walking zombie, essentially. Yeah. Well, slowly, this, this happened slowly, and so I was living as a travel writer at the time, which is sort of the unusual part of this story, and, but eventually the, the drugs took too much of a toll, the depression as well, and I basically went to bed for for five plus years, and um, so I'm sorry I got off base there about what the question was. Um, but that's, well, that's a bit it was, no, it's really the fact that the question was around Dr. Winston and to yeah. you gained weight, you gained a lot of weight as a result yeah. of these medications. Uh, you weren't yourself; you were feeling out of your mind, and you were still a travel writer, right? So it was 
Uh, pretty interesting. So you answered the question. <laughs> okay, cool. Good. Well, you know, part one thing I'll add to that is just that drive to achieve, you know, especially in our younger years before we're 40. And it just, I just kept going and going sort of like, you know, just as if I were had a cocaine or, or alcohol or both problem, it was my problem was pills and addiction to pills. And I kept pushing myself, which was also part of the problem. So yeah, yeah, well, you know, and part of the the biggest part of the problem lies in what you referred to as a therapist suggested that you had an internal father complex. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give to our listeners about trying to please their father at the expense of their own happiness? Yeah. Um, you know, look, it's, it's, I, I, I think this happens in a lot of families, but people don't talk about it. Yeah. Right. I have, I have a buddy who's been trying to please his dad forever and ever. And no matter what he does, he's never going to get the recognition right. that he wants. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, um, a leader, uh, he's deceased now, but uh, in the men's movement back in the nineties named Robert Moore, who talked about some men get blessed and those men end up moving through life rather efficiently or more efficiently than, than not. And, and then there's people who don't get blessed and, and that can be the type of scapegoat person that I was, but for whatever reason, their, their fathers never, never see them for who they are. And it does create, you know, what, what I've seen Richard Rohr call father hunger. And, you know, how do you deal with it? I think the first stage is you've got to even see that it's happening. So much of this is unconscious in those, in your twenties and thirties. And I guess that's one thing I would say to your listeners, if they're young is, you know, if you do feel like you didn't get blessed, um, you know, can you try to bring this to consciousness in some way and do some reading about, about this kind of thing? And also then when you arrive towards 40, though, I think, you know, when the the classic kind of time for a midlife crisis is when, you know, we stop achieving so much to please our absent fathers and you have a chance to 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 try something new. So I guess the other thing I would say would be to encourage anyone who's approaching that age to see if you can't look back and see how you've been running automatic programs trying to please an impossible father and see if you can't connect. I, in my opinion, the answer is to try to connect deeply with your deepest feelings, because I think that's not just your emotions, but your deep values about what you really, what really matters to you, what you, what you really should be doing with your time in life. And I think that's also in my, you know, estimation, also a portal to the, to your soul. I mean, I think when you can tap deeply into your, your deepest self is when you can uh, touch, touch base with your life's purpose and and maybe your soul. Well, I think for our listeners, before I move on to the next question, the add on question to this should be how did it end up with your father? Cause they're going to want to know whether they mm-hmm. had the book or not. Um, and I think that's an important thing because as you move on, you know, our parents predecease us usually, right. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people carry that after the parents have been deceased. Tell us where you are now. Yeah. Well, I, I, obviously, I've done a lot of work and, and a lot of work in therapy. Um, and even I think I do believe a lot of the work in yoga has, has also helped. But trying to get clear, um, you know, basically every advisor in my life, uh, whether a therapist or 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 deep friend, um, has advised me not 
not to be in contact uh, with my my family at all. And I know okay. that's a very that's a very um, that's not what you hear a lot is, is maybe the path um, mm-hmm. I've worked on. You know, I do believe forgiveness is important, and I think I've gotten there for the most part. Um, I also know that um, that I'm still rebuilding my life. This is still a process. Um, um, and so I've got to be very careful. All I can say is I wish you the best on this journey as you take this in hopefully mending it. And I hope yeah. that the two of you can come to some loving understanding uh, before uh, he dies, mm-hmm. uh, before you die. Yeah, uh, That wouldn't be something that, let's say, you don't really want to take that to the, your grave with you. But, you know, talking about a journey, you you talk about this hike you went on for 65 kilometers. It's the pilgrimage route in Galilee region of Israel that traces throughout that Jesus may have walked. This is a very spiritual part kind of of the book. You start, you state in the book that you forged a path on this trip. You were seeking new ways of seeing yourself other than as a bipolar former adventure writer who had dropped out of society and spent five years in bed. Um, You know, what realization did you take away from that pilgrimage? Mm -hmm. What did you, what understanding did you come away from, Brad? Yeah, you know, I think I went there really wondering if I couldn't become a Christian like I was when I was a kid. And I soon learned that I that I couldn't. Um, But it, it did it did that type period of contemplation, it did begin to open my heart. And I did a lot of pondering of the spiritual texts. And, and it, it really began the longer spiritual journey that, as you know, would lead me to more an Eastern understanding. But, you know, I guess one of the things it did, it helped me to understand why I was so fascinated as a kid with Jesus. And, and I, you know, I know that there's, you know, in America, we've got a really, uh, you know, kind of a delusional Christianity that has become the mainstream, in my opinion. And and so what I'm when I talk about this, I'm talking about what the, you know, what the myth of Jesus said. And it's it's essentially this this was a powerful man who was who stood up to uh, authority, who who was compassionate, strong, um, you know, all the things that we would you would want to be in a man. And I now see that that was part of this journey I was on and idealizing Jesus. So I came to understand that. But I think the biggest thing it did start to open my heart. It just began to, you know, I was a very intellectual journalist type, and that was part of the problem. I was a probably a deeply spiritual person the whole time who wasn't living a spiritual life. And so when I got back, you know, as I got to the airport in Tel Aviv, they ordered me to empty my bags out and they confiscated my computer. And I just had a moment there where I realized this was, this was a worthwhile trip. It didn't, didn't achieve what I thought it might, but, but it opened my heart and I was ready, ready to continue on this path of the heart, essentially, because that's what, that's what Jesus was about. I searched for Jesus in, you know, in the, on the trails of Palestine for the, the historical Jesus, but what ended up happening is opening my heart. So, well, you know, whether it's a, a deity that you, I don't care if you're Hindu, Jew, uh, Christian, Catholic. Um, there's many paths to the top of the mountain, as they say. And all of them are filled with our own pain and suffering mm-hmm. as a result 
of our own pain and suffering, right? So first you have the realization, right? Yes. And, you know, in this chapter, Door of Faith, you state that you didn't think that an adventure writer has much in comic with a myst, uh, mystical Sufi poetry. Um, and I, I actually ask you to cite this poem, not me. I could easily read it, but I mm -hmm. think it needs to come from you on page 163. And the things that you found in common, and why did these three lines, as you say in the book, slay you? Yeah, you know, I think I, I was reading this this poem. I was reading a lot of Rumi when I got back from Israel and Palestine, and and I, uh, you know, I realized that that you know a Sufi mystic was longed for God, sort of in the same way that a mountaineer would long to be on top of a of a mountain, and. And, you know, the things that tended to get in our way of both an adventurer and a, and a Sufi mystic or a spiritual person is our own human sort of fallib fallibility. So, you know, as I, I read, I stumbled upon this poem in, in a book of poetry by Rumi, and I'll read it now. The um, burning with longing fire, wanting to sleep with my head on your doorsill. My living is composed only of trying to live in your presence. I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on your door. It opens. I've been knocking on the inside. And something about that just brought tears to my eyes. And it, all, and it really does, even as I read that now. And I think, you know, obviously the line about the insanity and, and the insanity I'd gone through, my own insanity, my own version of it, the insanity of the medicalized you know, mental health industry and and the insanity of us all in our own suffering. And that really spoke to me. And then that final line about I was knocking from the inside Side, is, is yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just finding that that's the, that that's the line. <laughs> it is the line. And and to finally realize that what you were searching for out in the world is not there and that you've got to make it an inner inner journey, inner adventure. And that's a shift that not everyone gets to make and and that's that's where life changes and things get really wild and weird and good and 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 it's just the journey into the present moment and back into your heart it's where you know it's it's where the healings finally can start to happen compassion for yourself and compassion yes. for others and at the same time understanding that the guru is in the mirror Yes. You know, it's facing you every day. That's the next book I'm writing, by the way. That's mm -hmm. the title. And I and I and I say this because, you know, after 18 years almost of doing these podcasts, I've had every walk a person come across this who's written a book about personal growth and spirituality and whatever. And as I weave that tapestry together, not unlike you. I see common themes that bounce around all the time mm -hmm. um, in this. And they don't really move too far from the mean, right? Yeah. Um, gr granted, the experiences can be more severe, mm -hmm. but the thing that draws one back to this equilibrium, to this homeostasis, to this spot of happiness and peace um, is, as, as I would say, it's 100% um, acceptance of self. Yeah. Uh, when you're always trying to be somebody else for someone else, that never works. I mean, you're your perfect example. And so that leads me to this, you know, look, Ram Das has been on the show. It's a way mm -hmm. back. He passed away. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
you had this infatuation with Eastern spiritual philosophies, Ram Dash and Krishna Das, and how this influenced your spiritual awakening. And I'd really like to know, what would you want the listeners to know about the positive influences that the Eastern cultures, mm-hmm. East, I should say Eastern spirituality has had on you? Yeah, I, definitely. And I, I would I want to start my answer with that by talking about just how the recordings of those men spoke to me again on this father hunger level. So even, even underneath the, the Eastern spirituality, which they led me to, I just found a different breed of, of masculinity in them who were heart-based, who were exploring their inner worlds. And that, that was the sort of the, the gateway drug for me into this. And then, you know, the other thing I think, um, the, the way in the East, you know, that, that our sense of self, I began to learn in the East is, is, is positive, essentially, as opposed to our Judeo-Christian past, which we have this original sin that kind of haunts us, even unconsciously, even if we're not that uh, religious or aware of it. And I, one of the things that helped me, I was in a yoga class, and this teacher just made the simple talk about how coming to a yoga class um, was sort of like polishing you know, this light that's inside you. And it was a very beginner level spiritual talk. And, and yet it really helped me to see that, that this, the Eastern path, um, you know, that, that I was a whole person already. I was, you know, you talk about guru. They say that God, guru, and self are one in, in the Eastern traditions. And so our own souls are connected to the souls of the world. And, and there was just a way that I found um, a connection to a way of seeing myself and my role in the world as in a more positive way. Um, so there was twofold. It was the men themselves who the Americans who brought it back that first hooked me. And then, and then I just went deep into the philosophy of it, you know, the, the Bhagavad Gita and letting go of the need for you know outcomes. And, and again, the self-compassion part, the meta meditation became a huge part for me. Um, Sharon Salzberg's work and, um, Kristen Neff and that that crowd. So, yeah. Well, meditation in of itself and yoga, one thing you already mentioned, are two things to center you and to make you much more focused on that whole compassion side mm-hmm. of yourself. Um, and and I sense that in you. In other words, you've taken these steps toward not medicating and using these as your medication um, and weaning yourself off of those medications. And you mentioned in the book that one evening you pulled off Herman Hesse's uh, off the bookshelf and the story had this stunning effect on you. Uh, Can you tell the story of uh, Sudhatra and Buddha and why it was so important to you? Because this is like one of the, like, um, I don't know if we call it the, quintessential kind of realizations for you but it seemed to me a really important piece of your book yeah um and it it actually is written in the book too i'll tell the listeners mm-hmm. uh, when you get it you actually paraphrased from uh that so it, there, there's something that happened to you it seemed like a turning point would i yeah. be right or would i be wrong you would be absolutely right and i think you know there's that moment at the end of the first act of the first section of, of the book where Siddhartha, who's been traveling all over um, India, trying to become um, a great 
you know, yogi and sort of understand himself does meet the Buddha in, in a grove. And he sees, he recognized the greatness of the Buddha and re realizes that he'd come up with really profound answers and, and a method to life. And, and yet he knew that he wasn't going to stay in the grove and become a Buddhist. He, he needed to keep, keep walking. And so he, he, thanks the Buddha and he literally walks away from the Buddha. And that's just another moment. I just, again, I almost am filled with tears in that moment. And I, I tried to understand what it, what it means to me. And I think the essence of it for me is, is this need to, to find our own path in life. You know, I think lineages and, and these traditions are, are beautiful. And if they work for you, great, stay in one, but there's also, you know, these, these, the Eastern methods teach us, to trust our, our own inner um, selves, to trust our own experience. And I knew that I was walking away from a lot in my life at that moment. I was walking away from the drugs at the time, for at least for the time being. I was walking away from my family. I was walking away from entire old ways of being. And I just knew that, that this was bold new territory I was entering. And I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but that I had to, had to walk away. And... Um, and it sounds drastic. And, and I did end up spending a lot of time alone in, in a very small apartment in Boulder, Colorado, kind of chewing on all of this. But I knew that I had to walk away from this high achieving past, the, the ways I was seeing myself in the world. And I didn't know where I was going to end up. And I think that's part of the, the, the mystery of transformation is you really don't know where you're going to end up. You know, you can you can you think you're going to try to change in certain ways. And, you know, you have no idea once you get into the process of how you're going to, it's going to be better. It's going to be, you know, it may be harder in some ways too, but it's, it's, uh, you know, there is a certain way that you can't plan your own transformation. So there's, that's some of that was in that quote too, I think. Well, and, you know, I was just not too many podcasts. Thomas Moore, the monk had been on here talking about the eloquence of silence. Mm. And, um, it seems to be in our Western culture here, right? That it's so hard mm -hmm. to deal with emptiness. We're always trying to fill something. Yeah. And my question for you is be, what did you find in the void and the emptiness and solitude that gave you comfort? Because, you know, a lot of people would say, no, no, I run from that because I got to fill it with something. If something, yeah. you know, depletes, let's go back and fill it back up again. But there is this true healing that can occur when you allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And my sense is you allowed it to happen. Not a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and so my curiosity is for you, what, what did, what occurred as a result of you allowing to empty? Yeah. It's a great question. And I would like to preface that by saying I had a real abandonment um, issue when at the time that I ended up walking away from my old life and, and sitting with myself. And so I didn't know how to be with myself. And I think that was part of what I was trying to do was to slay that dragon, so to speak, and to learn to be with myself. And as you have already mentioned, you know, meditation and yoga are practices that teach us to sit with our uncomfortableness. And and so, you know, one thing I, I did, I did learn to, to be with myself and, um, and so that's, that's part of it. And then I also then eventually learned, you know, began to see 
you know, humility, I think, is part of it. I, you know, part of all that, that we're talking about here to, to, to heal, you've got to find, you've got to be able to see that you've got to heal first. And that's such an important thing I want to stress. And, you know, I've mentioned Richard Rohr, but he's this monk in Albuquerque, but he, he says he prays for one good humiliation a day. And what a way to think of your life and to think of, you know, the way to get back to your true self. Um, and the final thing I'll add, you know, there is this idea in, in, in yoga of tapas and tapasya, which is sitting in the fire of things. And, you know, there is a way, I think, during those years, there was, there's, you know, five plus years where I lived alone in this very tiny studio apartment. And there's, you know, the way of just burning stuff off, burning off the dead wood, because I, you know, and I think Ram Dass used to talk about this, just the need for sacrifice and, and not not in the way that we think about it in the West, but the, the way of burning off dead wood, the parts of us that don't serve us anymore. And yeah, eventually, very well said. Yeah. Very, very yeah. well said. And I think, you know, sacrifice, we, most people connotate with sacrifice with giving up something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually when you give up something, let's say you are, you have an opportunity to renew yourself, yes. completely renew yourself as a, as a, as a new soul. And, you know, this book takes a lot of twists and turns. It's a great story about your journey to healing. And we've mm-hmm. covered a lot of it so far, but obviously not all of it. I'm going to tell my listeners, go to Amazon and mm-hmm. get a copy. This is a Hache book. Um, if you were to distill your life experiences down into a simple mantra mm-hmm. about how you live and your life, and what would that what would that be? That's part one of the question. And also, what sage advice with all the suffering you've been through and all the pain you've been through would you have for people who are currently suffering with mental illness? And how might they find a way out from the suffering and the pain? Mm. Great questions. Um, as far as the mantra, you know, I think that one of the epigraphs of my book is is from Bob Dylan's uh, song, and it, it, uh, you know, the quote is, "How does it feel?" And and of course, that song is about a lot of different things, but I think. You know, we live in a time when we live in our heads and we live um, very disconnected from our bodies and our hearts. We stare at computers all day long. Um, You know, maybe you go to an office and you don't feel connected to your body and heart. And, you know, I guess, how does it feel that that term says more than what it says to me? It means connecting to your heart and it means connecting to the deepest places within you that that can take you to to your soul and to your purpose and all of these things. So there's something about that quote that, that means a lot, even though it's just a popular song. Um, humility is another, another term that I'm constantly challenged by. And, and that brings me a lot of, uh, you know, a deep understanding about myself. And then the final part, the advice to somebody um, struggling in a mental health uh, journey you know, I guess I would lean on that, uh, trusting your own intuition, trusting your own experience. I, I, you know, I know that, um, that the thing about a mental health struggle is that unlike a physical struggle, which I know there's many that are horrible, um, 
it, your whole worldview gets tinted. Your whole view of yourself gets tinted. And, and in, in my case, it got tinted very negatively, a very negative view of myself that caused the depression. And, and, you know, I think to circle back to this word faith, I guess, is part of it, that if you can connect with yourself, if you can find faith, not the, not the belief in a God, but a faith that if you get knocked down again, you can get back up and, and that you can find your center, as you said. Um, and, and, uh, you know, this is a bit of a rambling answer, but the last thing, the thing that I wanted to add to that previous question about all those years in, in, in that single room apartment, I eventually learned that I needed to find community. And so this is a key thing. I, I did not know how to be in relationship. My upbringing had damaged my own nervous system and didn't really know how to be in relationship, even though I'd been married a couple of times and all this. So I had to find community again. So find community. The healing happens. You know, you can take yourself so far in the emptiness and then you've got to go back to community and have your heart opened by being around people. So you know, as much as you want to isolate, find find a way to to get around people, even in the physical world too. I mean, if if all you can manage right now is Zoom calls, great, but try to be in the presence of other humans who you feel the resonance of the heart, you feel the connection we all have. So that's my message. Well, I'm going to conclude this with with something that Buddha said. Um all teaching is suffering and the end mm. of suffering. Um, suffering is his teachings and does not necessarily mean grave physical pain, mm. but rather the mental suffering we undergo when our tendency to hold on to pleasure encounters the fleeting nature of life and our experiences become unsatisfying. Mm. Um and I, and I think, you know, when you look at the Four Noble Truths and you look at Thich Nhat Hanh and you look at the Buddha's teachings, there's a lot that can be said for Eastern philosophy, no matter who's out there, whether you're a Christian and you think that, you know, the true origins are that of the teachings. Um, there's so much that's interconnected between the Bible mm -hmm. and all of these other texts that have been written in Eastern philosophy. And I just want to say that your book actually kind of went both sides, right? It's like mm -hmm. it was looking from the Christian standpoint and being brought up that way and then going and find the Eastern philosophy. And, and I think for somebody, it's not a confusing book to read at all. It's a book that actually talks about the transformation that occurs to a soul like yourself mm. as a result of being curious and exploring. And um, most of this, and Buddha would always say, is always question anything that he said. And I would say that true. You know, if you really want to find the deep answers, question. Mm -hmm. If it's not resonating for you, then don't read any further. Go on and find something else, but keep seeking. Yes. And that would be my answer is continue to seek until you find the answer. And most often you'll find that answer as a result of all the things you've read, all the experiences you've had, all the loves you've had, all the loves you've lost, and all you've let go of. Hmm? Um, and in the end, that's really not a formula. It's just kind of a path. Maybe that's the way you can go around the path. Yeah. 
I love what you just said, and I appreciate your skill in this entire interview. And I, I think you're right. There's everyone has their own path. There are some tried and true things that I would recommend: therapy, yoga, those kinds of things. But man, there's so many things I tried that that uh, I my intuition told me they would help heal me somehow, and I just went down there, and they did. You know, uh, yeah. So I love I love what you said, and thank you little, for allowing little, me to be here. Well, little by little, right? In other words, yes. Like I, so you tried ayahuasca or maybe you yeah. tried uh, in microdosing LSD or you tried, it doesn't matter what those things were, mushrooms, I, it doesn't matter. They all gave you the sum total of the experience of who Brad Wetzler is today yeah. and somebody who could write a book and weave it all together uh, in a, in what I call is a great story, a great memoir, but also great lessons of learning. So for my listeners and from me to you, namaste, my friend. Thanks for thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth, uh, sharing uh, into the soul of the world. We'll put a link to the book at Amazon. We'll also put a link uh, to the website, which I'll mention one more time before we uh, truncate this. It's Brad Wetzler, W-E-T-Z-L-E-R dot com. There you can learn more about him. Also about his writing classes and the community that he's teaching. If you're interested, um, he's got such a background as a writer and someone who spent years in this industry and is using that now to support himself. So please support Brad. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're thinking about it, go out, reach out to Brad, send him an email. It's easy to uh, hook up with him. He's got a memoir class, uh, but you can work with Brad in a lot of different ways. So uh, thanks, Brad, for being on. I hope it cools down a little bit in Austin, Texas, <laughs> and you get and you get a breather from that heat. Thank you, Greg, and many, many thanks for this opportunity. It's great to get to know you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.